When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You are listening to Tech Time with Summer's F1, presented by Missed Apex Podcast. We live F1. I'm your host, Matt Trumpets, and this episode is called Winging It. And I'm joined today by the hardest working man in Tech F1, Matthew Summerfield, assistant technical editor at motorsport.com, the man with the plan from Techie Stant, and known to all the cool kids onto Intertubes as Summers F1. So, Summers, tell me, how are you doing today? I'm doing really good, thanks, Matt. Um... Busy as always, and that's why, unfortunately, we haven't done a show for a very long time as usual, but hope you, you're good too. Yeah, I, I'm doing fairly well. So let's let's get right down to brass tacks. But first, I need to remind everyone we are an independent podcast produced in the podcasting shed with the kind permission of our better halves. We aim to bring you a race review before your Monday morning commute. We might be wrong, but we're first. Now, there was one thing that's happened this year that has been more exciting than anything we've seen in a long time. And that's essentially we had divergent front wing concepts show up at testing. I I can't remember the last time we've seen something that radically, I mean, so different that even your average viewer could look at it. And by average viewer, I mean me, I could look at it and go, wow, those wings are actually different. How fascinating. So my question is, and you are not the only, I'm not the only one. I think uh, Sarang on Twitter has said, how are we doing with this? Are we seeing divergence? Are we seeing convergence? Uh, or is it, as we thought it might be, sort of a meeting in the middle uh, being the optimum setup here? Yeah, well, as we discussed at, at the early phase of this regulation set, there was always going to be a, a, a sort of area within the middle of the regulations where teams would sort of settle in towards. So we had sort of Alfa Romeo, Ferrari, and Toro Rosso on the one end of the spectrum with a very unloaded 
outer part of the front wing. And then we had the likes of Mercedes and Red Bull running a very loaded outer part of the front wing. And they're still essentially trying to do the same thing. They're trying to create this outwash that we had in the previous regulations. And the reason they're doing that is to help with the wake turbulence that's created by the front tyre. Now, obviously, that is very difficult to uh, rein in in terms of creating performance for the rest of the car. So if you if you create this aerodynamic performance from the front wing, the outwash that they're looking for, you can kind of pull the airflow away from the rear end of the car. And so that's what they were looking for. As you say, there's been some convergence over the, the course of this season. Um, the, the two camps have sort of started to, to meld together. Um, although the unloaded end of the spectrum, the sort of Alfa Romeo and Ferrari, are still very much at their far end of the spectrum, and the others have started to come towards them. So um, I know that uh, Richard McGill was wondering about that, and you've answered that question, but are we seeing that because the aerodynamic concept behind the less loaded outer front wing has no flexibility to it. So essentially Ferrari at all are stuck with this concept or are we seeing uh, Mercedes and some of the ones who stuck with a more traditional uh, approach to the outwash, seeing that there might be some gains in it for them? Well, I think there's two two things to think about here. Firstly, there's the, the actual direct consequence of those two concepts that, that work in, in different uh, perspectives to one another. So with the Mercedes end of the spectrum or Red Bull end of the spectrum, you're obviously creating a lot more front-end downforce with the front wing because you have much more span available to you. Um, whereas with the Ferrari end of the spectrum, you're effectively working on efficiency levels because you've got less downforce on, on the front axle from the, the front wing itself. But on top of that, we also have to remember that there's other ways of creating this outwash and again, that was area an, an area where the FIA tried to change the rules to prevent that from happening, um, where we had sort of things like blown axles, et cetera, uh, in, under the previous regulations. But what's actually happened since the new regulations have, have come about, um, a lot of the teams have started to manipulate the way in which that the airflow moves through the brake basket. So we've got more focus on the inlet side of things, um, and that airflow is then pushed out through the brake duct and out through the wheel rim. And it's a very clever trick that help, helps to enhance what's going on at the front wing as well. So you have to marry those two concepts together. And the, the teams that are having the most success are the ones that are being able to make those two um, aerodynamic structures operate together cohesively and deal with the, the turbulence that's created by the tire wake. All right. So essentially... They're moving to take better advantage, uh, Mercedes, From if I've understood this correctly. They're moving to take better advantage of that particular aspect of manipulating the wake of the tire by using uh, not blown, blown axle. Because you're not supposed to be able to blow the front axle, but yet somehow this is still going on. So maybe you could explain that a little bit, too. Okay, yeah. So, so previously, under the previous regulations, and Mercedes never used a blown axle in the previous iteration of the regulations, all the time that they came back into the sport since 2010, they've never used a blown axle. But obviously, based on the new regulations, they looked at this concept and thought, well, the other guys were using it, so perhaps we can help with the 
problem that we're having with our front wing to recover some of the downfalls and some of the outwash that that we need to improve the overall performance of our car. So what they've done is they've taken the sort of crossover pipe work that we saw in the past that distributes airflow taken in by the front brake inlet and it pushes it across the face of the uh, brake assembly and throws it directly out of the wheel rim. Uh, they're, they're doing that en masse because previously it used to be blown out the centre part of the axle, which they no longer can do. But instead, they've worked out that, well, we can still do this. We can still have this effect, but we've just got to work a little bit harder to do it. And we've got to craft some very um, novel ways of moving that airflow. Um, in fact, it's probably more effective than the old way of doing it. It's just that obviously when you're you're faced with these challenges, you then have to make adjustments to try to make improvements. And I think that's one of the key factors about the 2019 regulations. We're still seeing cars that are a lot faster, and that wasn't the projection. You know, the cars were meant to be slower than the previous generation of cars, and suddenly we're still seeing a, a, a quicker time. So is that kind of an indictment of the regulations? So it's only a partial success? Because I, I would say it seems like they say in terms of losing downforce and following, there's been an improvement there. But part of it, too, was they had wanted to slow the car some, and that hasn't happened. That's right. And I think, there's again, there's multiple facets to the, to, to the, the problem. Firstly, I don't think Pirelli have perhaps got it bang on where they need to be in terms of delivering uh, the lap time performance in in set with the way in which the regulations have been approached. Um, and then you also have to think about the teams are, are far, have a far bigger advantage than the FIA in terms of the way that they set the regulations. Of course, we have the working group that Ross Braun heads now, and they helped to develop the 2019 regulations to try to improve the overtaking issue that we've currently got. But you're always going to be up against a larger group of people. And our FOM's working group is in is less than 100 people. Um, and, and the teams, in the case of Mercedes, have what, five, 600 in, in uh, Brackley working on solutions. Uh, they're always going to be able to find the minutiae that you cannot find um, uh, uh, with lower numbers. So, you know, it's, it's always going to be a problem for the FIA in that respect. They're the rule makers and the teams are there to, to out, outflank them, basically. They, they're there to, to improve the performance of their car. Uh, and with these rule sets, we've not only seen you know, what was essentially supposed to be an increase in drag um, kind of stopped. Uh, the teams have worked out efficient ways to deal with the problem um, of that drag that would have been created had the teams gone down the conventional route that the rules were supposed to take. But, they, you know, they've worked around those those situations and we've seen some really interesting solutions to, to get them in, into an efficiency point of view. Um, quite close to where they were under the previous set of regulations. All right. Well, if we're going to talk about interesting things, um, it's come to my attention that even Racing Point now has this uh, thing that you explained, the push rod on upright. And apparently everyone now on the grid is running this, but it's been said, uh, I think it was Scarbs on Twitter, that they are no longer running sort of as the FIA envisioned them. I mean, isn't this technically a movable aerodynamic device at this point? And is this something that, well, first of all, perhaps you could explain it one more time and maybe, you know, 
shout out to your column that explains it with some very nice pictures. But is this something that we're going to see reined in like Frick and a lot of the other things, uh, in your opinion? I think that the, the thing about this solution is that because everybody has adopted it now, it's a case of how do you suddenly put the rabbit back in the hat? Uh, everybody has the, the uh, push rod on a bright solution. They all, they all use it to a varying degree, though. And the reason they use it to a varying degree is not only because of the inherent way that that particular system works, but it's the onset that it has on other subsystems within the car itself. You know, the, the wheelbase of their car, the way that they use the tires. Um, it, it's an, a driver preference as well. When Ferrari first introduced this system in 2017, they were the first to use the more aggressive push rod on upright uh, solution that we are now starting to see. Um, and Raikkonen hated it. And Vettel wasn't a big fan. So they lasted with it maybe two or three races. And then they went back to their older solution because the drivers didn't like the feel. Because what happens is when the driver turns the wheel in, there's sort of a latency between them getting a response from uh, the, the, the steering wheel input. And so when they turn it back, they also get this sort of pulling effect. Um, obviously, it's exaggerate, I'm, I'm exaggerating in, in terms of what the actual effect feels like to the driver. But, you know, the, these guys are, are, are driving the, the cars at hundreds of miles per hour um, and they need to be inspired by confidence. And if they're not quite feeling what they, they want from the car, um, then they're not going to get the overall performance from it. So in terms of the system itself, there's obviously a de varying degree of uh, what each of the teams have. And all of the teams are keep trying different solutions to try to not only improve the system, but make it more effective for each individual driver. Um, on top of that, obviously, FIA are monitoring the situation because they do know that this has a huge bearing on the aerodynamic platform of the car. Because effectively, what they're doing on turning is that bringing the, the front end of the car down um, which increases the ground effects not only on the front wing but on the front of the floor and effectively improves downforce. So in low-speed corners or low-to-mid-speed corners, depending on which team's got it set up in which particular way, then you get a, a maximising effect in not only the, the, the way that the car behaves um, from a kinematic suspension point of view and tyres, you also get this downforce gain as well. So it's sort of a multiplying situation and i do see the fia wanting to step in to try to out, out, not outlaw it but at least rein things in but the problem is is that with every team on the grid now being an adopter of the solution it would kind of be just one big reset and will it actually change anything and the answer to that is probably not so you don't think that i mean like if you say it's most helpful in low speed corners and right now mercedes seems to have a fairly big advantage you don't think it would bring them any closer together if they were to, say, um, reduce... Because uh, right now, am I wrong in thinking that it's only a 5-millimeter drop for a 12-degree at the wheel's steering angle? That's the maximum tolerance within the regulation, Jess. Um, but there's nothing to suggest that you couldn't circumvent that um, steering angle, let's say. To, to allow more than a five millimeter drop. 
Yeah, but uh, suppose that you just made it five millimeters period at at maximum steering angle of the tires. That wouldn't bring things closer together at all. You don't think? I think that the, I think the problem that we've got is is that we've seen this sort of situation as you've mentioned with Freak, and everybody assumed that because Mercedes were the early adopter and perhaps had the best version of Frick that they would be the ones that would be hit most and it would rain them in comparison to everybody. But like I say, because everybody has the system to a varying degree and that varying degree is more more to do with budget. So let's say all of the bigger teams have the better versions and all the low-end teams have the, the worst versions. All it does is effectively take that, that stance away uh, and, and effectively you, you have no gain apart from maybe some lap time uh, loss you know you might start to see at low speed circuits um, and certainly low speed corners that the cars just don't behave quite as good as they, they have done um, already so I think like I say it's just a grading situation and I think to be honest the FIA will probably think well we're two years away now or two two uh, seasons away should I say from a, a complete reset so at that point uh, there's going to be a lot more to do be able, for them to be able to do with this sort of thing, the suspension, etc. So I think they might just let it go for now uh, and wait for 2021 for, for the big reset. All right. Well, let me ask you another question then. Uh, at the beginning of the season, everybody thought Ferrari, with their efficient downforce concept, was going to really be giving Mercedes a hard time, especially after testing. And I will happily admit, I was one of these people. However, they ran into, at the beginning of the season, some not entirely perfectly defined technical problems that really set them on the back foot. Have they solved those problems? Because we've seen them looking very racy. Or is it just a matter of they have been at circuits which favors their design philosophy and they've not really made progress? In other words, poorly asked question. I'll try one more time. Have they simply fixed what was wrong and that's why they look faster now? Or have they also made some gains along the way? And that would be in comparison to, say, Red Bull, which admittedly said, we are nowhere. The engine surprised us. And now they have very clearly brought developments and they are much quicker. And yeah, so how how is that comparison? Okay, so... Ferrari, I think, personally, have kind of stalled in the early part of the season because they had a very false read on where they were in comparison to Mercedes in pre-season testing. And predominantly, the reason behind that was that Mercedes turned up with the A-spec car, which wasn't what anybody anticipated Mercedes arriving with. They then turned up to test two with the B-spec car, and that was more of a sighter of where we expected Mercedes to arrive first week with um but they didn't literally lay down their lap times in in the first test and i think that's probably because they were having teething issues of their own trying to understand what the difference between their two packages were so if we revert back to ferrari who suddenly thought that they'd aced pre-season testing um they had a lot of confidence going to australia and then suddenly got found out and that primarily came down to the tires as we've mentioned before, if you do not get the tyres in the correct operating window, they will not offer the performance that you require of them. And Mercedes got to got to Australia and they nailed the tyres in comparison. So I think then at that point, Ferrari 
had a long, hard look at themselves and realised that they'd made some fundamental, I'm not going to say no, not fundamental, but they'd made some errors in the way in which that they decided to go about their 2019 design. Their car really favours efficiency over pure downforce. And Mercedes arrive on the other end of the spectrum. They've effectively looked at the car and they've looked at the regulations and they've gone, we need more downforce. And how are we going to get that downforce, seeing as some of it should have been stripped away? And so what we've ended up with is we've ended up with Mercedes who've got a car that is exceptionally quick in low to mid-speed corners and we've got a Ferrari that's exceptionally quick on the straights and the two kind of don't mesh together when you get to certain circuits. And so the characteristics of both cars suit particular circuits and that's why we've seen Ferrari make a, a leap at certain circuits because the car, the car design that they followed has come to them at that particular circuit. And on top of that, the tyres for that particular circuit tend to suit their aerodynamic characteristics as well. Obviously, there's a lot more at play than just the simplicity of the way that I'm approaching this. But fundamentally, the two cars are very different in the way that they approach both downforce and drag. And that is why I believe that we've got this sort of difference between the two. Now, going to Red Bull, they too chose the efficiency side of the route because of their let's say, downside of the Honda power unit. Once they realised that they'd actually got a decent power unit this season, they've started to load the downforce on, and now they're starting to sort of make headway towards Mercedes. All right, well, that is a very concise, much better than my question, uh, summary of where everything is. And and, and it does answer my question, because I was curious, has Red Bull caught up? Has Ferrari really not gone anywhere? And essentially, it sounds like uh, Red Bull has caught up. Ferrari hasn't really gone anywhere. And then now it's just going to be down to circuit characteristics as to who's going to be doing the best. And that does sort of make it fun. But I do have uh, just looking at the big questions. And obviously, the biggest question of all, well, at least to me, has to be Haas. Because here they are. They're running two entirely different specifications of cars. They are supremely quick, often in qualifying, and yet they cannot maintain the pace at all during the race. So question number one is, and I know they're running them again in Hungary, but have you, in looking at it, do you have any thoughts about which specification is working better and why? And secondly, is there a solution to this problem? Because they're not, obviously, they're not as well-sourced as Mercedes or Ferrari, to solve uh, some of these fundamental issues, do you think they will be able to get it sorted out over the summer break to any extent at all? I think that they're going to struggle full stop. Um, Gunther Steiner recently has commented that um, it's the most difficult car that he's ever worked with. And I can see the reasoning why that he's saying that. Um, You know, we've seen other teams in a very similar predicament in the past where they've run um, cars in different specifications to try to understand what the fundamental issues are with their car. But I think it's slightly different with Haas. Um, usually the reason that teams do that is for aerodynamic reasons, because they, they want to roll back a, a, a performance update. They want to see what went wrong between them loading things onto the car um, uh, and how that has changed the performance scope of the car. In fact, Ferrari have done it over the last couple of seasons uh, when they've gone down a a very narrow uh, window of opportunity. Um, I don't think that's the case with Haas. I think 
that fundamentally they've got an issue with the car. The updates that they've got on Magnussen's car, because he's the one that's been running the updated version and Grosjean's been rolled back to the Australian car, um, is that they're just... The aerodynamic package is not suitable for the tyres. As you say, they're very quick in qualifying in stages, um, but then they really struggle in the race. And you can kind of see that diverging between the two drivers and the way that they approach qualifying and the way they approach the race. And I think that was really apparent in the German Grand Prix, um, how they ended up you know, sort of switching fortunes throughout the race. Uh, and yeah, I do think that they're going to continue to struggle because I don't think they've actually got a handle on which car's quicker, whether it's the day one specification that Grosjean's running or whether it's the brand new specification that Magnussen's got on the car. And the problem that you've also got is that those two drivers appear to have very different styles. Um, and I, I believe that's why they've chosen what they've decided to do with the two specs. I think the the day one spec perhaps suits Grosjean more. He's more confident with that car, uh, whereas Magnussen is a bit more aggressive um, and he needs to be aggressive with the tyre warm-up. And that's why they've chosen to take the, the the car that appears to have a little bit more downforce, but is very difficult to balance. So I think that's the, the main issue that they're facing is just that confidence in, the, in what they're doing. Um, and the balance that the drivers have got. All right. Well, I'm, I want to mention that we did get this question from Twitter from iHammer, I think uh, is how he pronounces his name. And if I'm wrong, well, won't be the first time. Um, thinking about the situation a little bit, could it be that they look better in qualifying because the speeds in qualifying are just so much higher? They're able to put enough energy? Because we know uh, just from general discussion that the problem is getting the tires up into the proper window so could it just be that they have designed a supremely easy on the tires car that only really gets enough energy into it when they're traveling at those speeds and because the races are so much slower it doesn't matter which spec they run they're going to have issues especially once the tread starts to go a little bit yeah, I think you you pretty much nailed it there. To be honest, Matt, you know there there is a difference clearly between qualifying and, and race trim for for Haas, uh, and I do think there is an issue that they have in terms of being able to generate heat in the tyres, which they can do over the course of one lap in most circumstances. Whether in in either spec, whether they're running in, on Grosjean or, or Magnussen's car. Uh, and as I say, I think Magnussen is just a, a, a more aggressive driver. The way he approaches uh, his driving style is perhaps more suitable for him to be able to load the tyres up with his particular spec that he's got on the car. Whereas Grosjean obviously prefers the balance that the day one spec offers. And that's kind of where they're at. They're struggling with two drivers that have very different needs in the car. And I think Ferrari have suffered this in the past with Vettel and Raikkonen. Because uh, Raikkonen is very specific in his requirements from from what he needs from the car, and I think you know fundamentally that is a challenge for the engineers um, to to try to improve the car in a way that doesn't hinder one or the other. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, could we also say that that even now Ferrari have this issue to a bit because Leclerc has certainly seemed quicker. With the way things are, as Ferrari has sought to rebalance the front axle, I think it's made the rear not as planted as Vettel likes it. And it may just be a relative thing, not an absolute thing. And although he's been quick in races, in qualifying, he does not seem to have this quite the same speed 
as consistently. It'll come and go uh, circuit to circuit. Yeah, and that, that, that's down to driver preferences at the end of the day and the way they set their cars up. I, I think you also see that factor with um, Hamilton and Bottas in, in some ways. If you look at their qualifying gaps this year, Hamilton, I think he's 7-4 to, to Bottas. Um, and there's only been two really dramatic differences in terms of lap times. I think there was six tenths between the drivers in perhaps Spain, was it? And I cannot remember where the other circuit was. And then everywhere else, they're fairly level. There's a tenth or a thousandth between them. And I think they're they're perhaps the, the closest on the grid in that respect. So that means to me, personally, that either Mercedes are able to handle the differences between what both drivers want very effectively, or both drivers want something very similar, and one is able to outperform the other come the requirement on qualifying day. All right. Well, since we're talking about Mercedes, let's talk about Mercedes. Let's get into it a little bit. They've had multiple, multiple updates as they do. They just are constantly churning things onto the car. But we've just seen a very, very big one at Hockenheim. And looking at it from the outside and just thinking about the fact that they were screwing different bodywork onto Lewis Hamilton's car with 10 minutes left in the third free practice, is it working out the way they planned this latest update? And what do you think they'll be able to get out of it um, if they've not gotten it all working yet? Okay, so this doesn't really just account for Mercedes, and I think it counts for everybody on the grid currently, but especially when you bring a big update package like we've seen from Mercedes in Germany. That's their th- fourth update package, I believe, that was huge. You know, they arrived in Barcelona pre-season testing with two cars, almost. Um, very different in specification, so we've got a B-spec there. They then arrived in Spain again in round five with another huge update, which effectively made the C-spec. And then they've arrived in Germany with a third different iteration. So that's the D-specification as far as I'm concerned. Um, we're talking huge. We're talking multiple um, areas of the car being updated. And... The problem that you have when you're doing those type of updates is, is that the car is drastically different to what it was the last time out. So, you you know, the driver also has to adapt to those changes, not only for qualifying, but also for the race and the way that the tyres behave. And, you know, it, it, it's a learning process. So what I think we've, we're seeing in 2019 is that there's a time latency between updates arriving than being understood and then the team unlock, unlocking that that advantage that they've gained from the update. Now, Mercedes, according to their wind tunnel, was suggesting that there were that update in Germany was worth half a second. Now, it didn't translate to half a second in Germany, but that's not to say it won't do in Budapest, um, ju- in Hungary, sorry, uh, just purely because of the way that the, the car will operate uh, because they'll have got, on top of the situation from Germany, they'll have taken that data, they'll have learned from it, and they'll extrapolate it to get more performance from the car. And to be frank, I think they'll need it um, in their fight against Red Bull for this particular race because we all know how good the Red Bull chassis can be at low, lower speed circuits. Um, but to me, Mercedes are on a completely different level to any of the other teams when it comes to updating their car. You know, we, we as I say, we've seen effectively three major major updates so far this season uh, and on an unprecedented level when you look at the rest of the grid you know other teams are perhaps looking at individual areas uh, and making 
you know, revisions to those areas to try to find pockets of performance. Whereas Mercedes are looking at the entirety of their aero structure and saying, we want to change all of the daisy chains, you know, because that's effectively what we're looking at with aero. You've got one starting point and you want that airflow to move into certain directions. You've got to create a daisy chain effect and then that will improve every factor of the car. And that's what Mercedes have tried to do with these three updates is try to incrementally improve every aspect of the W10. All right. So I'm going to ask a question. It seems to me that last year um, they introduced an update later in the season. I think it was around the U.S. um, Grand Prix. And And it seemed like, again, it took them several races to really properly integrate it and understand it. And then it really came good for them when they got to Singapore. Uh, is this a similar type of thing then that you're suggesting is happening? Yeah, it's just taking time for them to understand the change in the car, you know, the the way in which that they can operate that car at a given circuit. Um, it, it's a learning process, effectively. They're just trying to learn their way through it. And not only are they trying to learn their way through it in terms of how the aero has changed the behaviour of the car, but also the drivers, how they, their inputs will have to change in order to get best from it. You know, because Hamilton perhaps, let's say if Hamilton was driving the Australia spec in Germany versus the, the Germany spec in Germany, he would have to adapt his driving style to suit that car because he's going to have more downforce, more efficiency, and so on and so forth. Uh, and that also means that his setup changes and the way that he... he uses the tyres will change as well, Uh, which just going on to tyres, I do think there is a massive difference between the way in which that Hamilton approaches tyre management compared to the way that Valtteri Bottas manages tyres. And I think that's where the two, you know, kind of differentiate in terms of lap time when it comes to a race. I think Bottas has the measure of Hamilton or almost has the measure of Hamilton over one lap where he can just absolutely nail every single aspect of that lap. But if he has to do it lap after lap after lap, there's a difference when the tyres are changing and that that means that the car's moving slightly. And I think Hamilton has a, a depth way of dealing with that situation compared to Bottas. Yeah, well, I, I seem to recall him admitting as much uh, several races ago, just saying that if I look at it, the one area that stands out to me is um is tire management. Lewis is simply better at it during the race. And it's not surprising because these are not easy tires to deal with at all. No, they're not. Um because of the temperature windows that we we talk about so often, you know, you, you only have to spike the temperature um on the surface to then cause a ripple that causes a problem with the core temperature and then it's just a cascading problem. And this is the the, the issue, you know, you get a cascading situation where you get, there's no return, you know, you, you, you've got to a point of no return effectively. And I think that's where we find some of the drivers having issues with the current crop of tyres is that they just go to a certain point and, uh, and that they, they can't recover. Okay, well, let's talk a little bit more about Mercedes before we move on. One of the things that was being touted over this brand new upgrade was that it was going to be better for cooling after what happened in Canada. Mercedes identified this as a weak point, and they've redesigned their bodywork to suit. That seems like that could be an advantage in Hungary, because it oftentimes gets pretty hot there. But 
is it a problem for them in terms of drag? They're already, although they're efficient, they're already fairly draggy and carrying a lot of downforce. Is this partially why we've seen the even bigger split in speeds uh, on the straight between Ferrari, say, and uh, Mercedes? Well, I think over the course of the last few races, Mercedes have tried to uh, push the limit of their cooling. They've tried to narrow narrow their cooling options down as much as possible um, at the sacrifice of performance in some respects. And we saw that in Germany. Um, as you say, they t- took off the new uh, package for Hamilton in FP3 um, so that they went into qualifying with the old cooling package. The rest of the car remained the same, but the cooling package, they went back to the old version. Uh, and the reason that they were trying to do that was to to obviously manage uh, power unit temperatures because if you if you ha- you have the same problem with power units as you have with tires. If you overwork the power unit, you can no longer eat. You have heat soak, which means that you can't attack as you would ideally like to because you can't use the high end power modes. Um, and, and I think that's partly the problem that they had in Germany. Uh, if we flip back to how their performance unravelled. Uh, you, we, we saw them obviously have an imperious level of performance in the opening phases of the race. Hamilton disappeared into the distance, but he had nobody in front of him. Uh, so he has maximum cooling, effectively. He then has that whoopsie into the barrier, comes in, has the whole debacle with the, the pit stop, uh, comes out and he's in traffic. Now, the car wasn't set up necessarily to be in traffic, and I think this is the problem that Bottas actually had when he was trying to catch Stroll towards the end of the race as well. He didn't have the tools available to him in his arsenal to be able to attack Stroll. And everybody's saying, oh, he should have just got past Stroll. Well, yes, I agree. But if you don't actually have all of the tools available to the to you that you necessarily should have, which Lance Stroll may have had, you know, he's running a Mercedes power unit. So in the right places on the track, he was able to be quicker than, than Bottas, which obviously then gives Bottas the trouble of trying to overtake. So, yeah, I do think that there were some issues in Germany in that respect. But I also think not only for Mercedes, but perhaps some of the other teams, there may have been a gamble on fuel. Because as we know, if you start under a safety car, um, there is the opportunity to save fuel. Now, wet conditions, you save fuel. I don't think a lot of those cars were tanked to be able to deal with the situations that unfolded. And I think that's where perhaps the likes of the Mercedes were even more limited because they didn't have the fuel to make the attacks. Um, They were already tapped out because they were trying to save fuel in order to make mileage. Um, If anybody watches IndyCar, you know know that, that saying, we need to make the fuel mileage. And that is the same for Formula One at the end of the day. They only have so much fuel in the tank and they have their performance metric to work with as well. So I think there was a lot going on in that German Grand Prix that perhaps has just gone a little bit under the radar. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. 
From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Well, that, that is very intriguing. Um, it makes me wonder if some of the other uh, teams at the top might not have had, as you said, Similar issues. Uh, I'm sure soft tires in 20 laps probably made a few race engineers grimace slightly. <laughs> I would have thought so, Matt. Yes, definitely. Like I say, there was so much going on in that race. To and what most people are just watching the action. I'm watching the timing boards. I'm trying to understand what is going on in the mind on the pit wall and what's going on in, in front of the driver and how they're having to manage the, the fuel, they're trying to manage the energy recovery, they're trying to think about the tyres, they're trying to think about where everybody else is on the circuit. And that's why those kind of races are extremely fascinating. I'm not saying that we should have those type of races every single race because I don't think um, it's a possibility. Um, but when they do happen, there is so much drama and narrative that gets missed because we're not open to, to being able to, to see it all unfold. All right. Well, what else did we miss then? Uh, I think perhaps that the one of the things that we, well, we didn't miss it, but Stroll, uh, strategically, what happened with Stroll at the end of the race. Um, the one thing that stands out to me is that everybody said what a masterclass that was in terms of calling the, the pit stop. And I, I, I do agree in some respects, but I don't agree for the, the simple fact of that it was a, a, just a pit call that was a genius stroke. Um, it's the timing of it that was the genius part of it. Um, they were lining 14th at that point. So anybody should have taken that risk at that point anyway, because you weren't going to score points in 14th position. You've got to roll the dice. You've got to play the Jensen card, as Spanners would say. Um but it was the timing of the pit stop. They waited to the very last moment until they knew the safety car was coming in. They made the stop at the point when nobody else could. So they were then ahead of everybody else in terms of a strategic landmark on the, on the track. And that allowed them to catch up to the back of the crocodile behind the safety car on a fresh set of very warm, soft tyres. And that is the difference between it being a genius move and not being a genius move. Having said that, the other two people that made a similar strategic decision were Kavia and Magnussen. They went a lap later, though, which meant that they didn't catch up to the safety car because they they'd literally followed the safety car in. So they had lap time to make up on the circuit. And Kavia actually made up that lap time and overtook Stroll whereas Magnussen didn't and fell back into the trap. 
So, you know, the, there's always nuance between what you do. But for me, the, the magnificent part of the stroll situation was the timing of making the stop, not the fact that they ro- rolled the dice in the first place. Yeah, I would I would have to agree with you because I, I went back and watched it on the tracker again, just exactly how he did that. And I really can't help but think that um, both Toro Rosso and, and Haas must have been looking at his performance in catching up to the safety car and thought to themselves, well, yeah, let's do follow it in because it wound up being a huge undercut. I mean, I know Magnussen wound up losing positions, but when he first was out, he was he was pretty much right behind Kvyat. He just, uh, as Haas has been unable to do all year long, basically, wasn't able to sustain that pace very long before the tires started going away on him. I think. Yeah, and it kind of was the reverse situation of what Magnussen had done earlier in the race because he'd taken the soft tire when nobody else was doing it. He'd rolled the dice at that point thinking, I'm going to make a massive gain um, because I'm going to be the first one onto the soft tire. I'm going to pull the trigger first. And unfortunately, it didn't work out for him. And to be honest it did sort of create a turning point in the race because then once he was out there on the soft tyre, it kind of put in the mind of the str- the strategists on the pit wall, well, he's out there on the soft tyre, so we're going to pull the tr- trigger as well before it's too late. And I was watching the timing board and I was only watching Magnussen's timing. I wasn't watching anything else in the race at that point. And my initial instinct was, this isn't the right tyre. He was losing time to start with. And, and that's purely because the track was too wet for softs. But then there became a crossover point where he started to make lap time. And then it started the trigger of everybody coming in. And as we know, the, the situation unfolded a little differently from there onwards with the medium tyres as well. Yeah, I was staggered to see the medium tyre on anyone after last year's race in the wet with the hypersoft warm being the tyre that worked in those crossover conditions better than the enters. Interesting note on Magnuson, though, because I, too, watch the occasional timing screen when I watch the race. He was one of a small group that tried to stay out on the wets and skip the first pit stops once the safety car came in. And none of them wound up doing all that well. And I think, really, of all the runners, only Carlos Sainz was smart enough just to stay on the enters the whole time. Yeah, and the, the, the one driver that really, really fell unfortunate at that point was um, Albon. He switched to another set of Inters, and I think he was only on the Inters for two laps at one stage, and he had to come in for another stop. So if he'd have been able to eke out that, that, you know, that pit window, then he would have effectively made a huge jump forward because he'd lost effectively a pit stop at it. For, for no reason, he, he'd lost 20-odd seconds um, taking that pit stop. So, yeah, there, there's always winners and losers in these situations, isn't there? Um, and Albon did a fantastic race throughout anyway, um, but there was perhaps a, an opportunity for him to have, uh, have stepped forward a little bit further. All right, well, talking about winners, uh, Sushmit Mandal on Twitter would like to know, how is it that Honda has become so competitive that they just had a double podium with a Red Bull and a Toro Rosso, which, when was the last time they were on the podium? It's probably been a a little bit of time for them. So how have they managed to uh, find their form, and um, to what extent has the updates that Red Bull brought now been a part of that and and sort of like where are they pitching themselves they're not ferrari they're not mercedes so where are they finding this time from 
Okay, so I think that that we've talked about Honda on many occasions, Matt, and we've always been the ones of optimism and everybody's been kind of shouting us down for that fact. We knew at some stage that Honda would come good because they are Honda. Um, I do, however, think that there's a massive amount of input coming from Red Bull in terms of helping Honda to improve their product as well as their own. Uh, They're also making concessions for each other uh, in terms of their design. So as we know, Red Bull started out with a very particular type of car at the start of the season. They had a massive update in France. And since that race, things have completely changed for them. Now, the update in France, I don't think, again, talking about Mercedes earlier, they didn't understand the update in France. They were way off the pace of that race. Yet they turned up in Austria with basically the same car um, and they've, they've essentially worked out how to get the best from the chassis and the power unit. It's a cohesive unit at the end of the day. They've got to work together. And if you try to do too many things on one side and not the other, then obviously you're going to lose performance. One of the biggest issues that Honda have had uh, since their re-arrival back into the sport has been their energy recovery system and also their use of fuel. And I think that's primarily where they're, they're making huge strides. It, it, it's a race behind the scenes that people don't talk about is fuel um, and the important role that that can have on performance. They ha- they suffered massively, Honda, when they worked with McLaren in terms of the, the fuel that they were being given uh, to work with. And I think their work with um, Mobile One and Red Bull on that respect has helped massively. On top of that, you've obviously got a larger infrastructure in the background between all of those companies. So Red Bull have thrown their weight behind the whole uh, package. You know, you've got uh, Secura in Japan who are working on the power unit. You've got the, the the base in Milton Keynes, and I'm quite sure there is some work going on at the base in Red Bull in Milton Keynes as well in that respect. Um, and that's, I think, where Honda have had the biggest upsweep compared to their work with McLaren in the past. It's just how unified everybody is at working with one another. And you have to thank Toro Rosso for that in some respects because they nurtured that relationship in the first year that they worked with them in 2018. And that has kind of passed over into the relationship with Red Bull in 2019. Yeah. Now, am I wrong in understanding that Mario Ilian is working with Honda in some capacity on this power unit? Mario Ilian's name comes up everywhere, doesn't it, when it comes to power units and and, and helping out. Um, so, uh, Red Bull are always eager to get Mario's input uh, towards their, their power unit project. And they tried to assist Renault with Mario's help um, a couple of seasons ago, and it was rebuffed. Since then, I believe Renault have perhaps adopted a couple of the suggestions that Mario had at the time uh, to try to resolve some of their issues. Uh, I, I, that's unsubstantiated, but don't quote me on that one. Uh, but I, I would suggest that Mario's perhaps got some involvement in, in the Honda uh, deal at the moment. I'm not... I'm not going to say for 100% because there's not actually a, I've not actually got proof of that one way or the other, but I do believe there's some, some uh, information passing in direction, Jess. Some consulting then. That, that's the word, consulting, yes. 
All right. Um, and the other question I would have, and this was also uh, part of uh, Sushmit's uh, query, was is particularly in Austria, we saw a Red Bull as fast as a Ferrari. And I'd seen it uh, posed at the time that perhaps it was because uh, Red Bull were more willing to sacrifice an extra power unit and use higher power modes. But on balance, do you really think that Honda is now there or thereabouts with the Ferrari and Mercedes? Or are they still lagging behind and they were just uh, willing to be uh, less cautious about it? I, I think there is some caution being thrown to the wind. I think they do realize the fact that they might have some durability and reliability issues towards the end of the season. But why not try and bank some points whilst you're on the crest of a wave, let's say? They know at this point in the season that they're doing exceptionally well. So they want to try to bag as many points as they can. And they've also got a, a substantial update from Honda and uh, their fuel supplier, Mobile One, coming for the Italian Grand Prix. So again, that could be another major factor in driving this championship forward uh, if they are to try to make that headway in comparison to uh, Mercedes. I don't think they've perhaps got enough to bridge that gap, if I'm honest, because Mercedes have been there and done it for the last five seasons. Um, and, and to try to destabilise them when they're already ahead might be a, a, a bit of a hard task. But in terms of their position to Ferrari, I think what you have to think about is, is that Red Bull have realised and understood their their position. They know how to get the best from their chassis and power units at this very stage. And Ferrari still don't know how to get those things from their car. So Red Bull are in a situation where they're maximising their performance, but Ferrari is still teetering on the edge of being able to get the best from the SF90, uh, both in qualifying and the race. So I think, yeah, I I personally think Red Bull have leaped ahead of Ferrari quite significantly, um, depending on which driver is at the wheel. Um, but Ferrari have kind of taken uh, are taking a longer view of the situation. They know that they've made some mistakes with this car. They're trying to create some solutions to those problems. But I think they also realise that they can't fix everything and they can't fix it all at once. So they're going to have to play the long game. They, As we're Thursday on a Hungarian Grand Prix, I can tell you that they've had some updates arrive for the car for this weekend. Uh, there's new barge boards, which has the double sort of boomerang section across the top of the, the barge board section, uh, which is a design we've already seen Mercedes prefer. Uh, helps to break up the turbulence that's created by the front wheel and disperse it down the car. Um, and they've also changed the front element on the side pod deflectors. That now has an extra slot in there. Uh, and again, he's just about controlling uh, the, the way in which the, the airflow moves around that bit of the car. So, you know, this is the thing with Ferrari, though. They're only bringing smaller rectification parts. I don't see them with a, a, a large arching package that's arriving that's going to, say, bring them half a second, which is what we've seen both Mercedes and Red Bull already do. All right. So essentially, you're sort of saying they're looking at their design looking at the tires, which of course are going to change again for next year anyway, but they're probably thinking, let's solve the big problem now, even if it means doing less or doing more with less in the short term, 
so that next season, the last one of these current regulations, we will be we will be on a par with and properly competitive with Mercedes. Is that sort of what you're getting at? Yeah, I'm basically saying they're taking some short term pain for some long term gain. You know, they're they're, they're thinking about the the bigger picture. Uh, they they know that they cannot fix these things that they have wrong. I'm not saying that their car is wrong. It's just that it doesn't work in, under every circumstance. Neither do the other two's car. You know, Mercedes and, and Red Bull still have weaknesses. They're not as quick as Ferrari on the quicker tracks, but there's less quicker tracks on the calendar than there are downforce-ridden tracks. You know, so that's where Ferrari will have a boost when it comes to certain circuits. You know, we're going to go to Belgium and we're going to go to Monza and the Ferrari will naturally be quicker at those circuits. But the other two can technically dial performance in by reducing the downforce that they're running on their cars. So, you know, but Ferrari can't load on downforce. So they're, they're in this tricky situation where they don't quite have the car to match their competitors. Uh, they're having to make the best of a fairly bad situation. All right. It also occurs to me, and uh, this is going to be nice because we do have a McLaren question. If I look at Zach Brown going to McLaren, which I, I was, yeah. Um, but I have to admit, I'm looking at McLaren now, and they have come good, but it's taken him a couple of years. And if I look at Bonato, and especially if I think about the fact that Marchione was sort of halfway through uh let's clean this up and make it work in a modern way project when he passed. I just wonder if some of this may not be down to the immense reshuffling that has been going on there and a project that really is probably only half complete in terms of management structures and things like that. Yeah, I mean, of course, that has a major impact on the on the team in itself, you know, the, the way in which that they operate. Um, Bonotto is a very different character to Riva Bene, let's say, um, in terms of the way that he manages people and perhaps the way in which the, the structure has changed within the company to try to maximise performance. You know, we only have to look at the way in which, as you say, McLaren have changed their structure over the last couple of years um, to try to see how that can have an effect on performance. There's obviously other factors involved in the way McLaren have come forward, um, but one of the key factors is, is the way that they've changed things behind the scenes. Um, and that's what I find fascinating about the way that Mercedes work, the no-blame culture, um, and the way that they approach failure. They don't actually adopt a failure technique. You know, They see that as an opportunity to improve. They will have seen... Germany as an opportunity to say, well, we made errors, but how do we make our car and our operation work better because we found those errors in our system? You know, it, it's bug finding at the end of the day, isn't it? Um, and I think that's part of the problem, as you say, with Ferrari. They're in a situation where they, they've got a, a certain type of structure that is has now become something different. And there's that fluidity between the two, trying to find common ground. Okay, let's talk about McLaren briefly. We had a question from Nigel underscore G, who apparently has learned nothing from our previous discussion about underscores. Uh, but he wanted to know about McLaren and specifically about their um, geometry, whether or not you felt that using this push rod on upright, that they would be able to improve their um, low, low, low speed corner handling. 
Uh, okay, so McCurran ha- already have a uh, push rod on upright solution. As I say, most all the teams currently have it anyway, to a, to a varying degree. They've attempted to go more aggressive with it and have tested that solution. But apparently, much like I talked about earlier, there's this problem with the feel that the drivers have over the ability to understand how much downforce you can gain. So it's like switching on a tap, getting nothing, no response, then turning it more and getting a, a massive stream. You know, that, that's, the, that's the way in which I would explain the amount of downforce that you can generate from suddenly dropping the car um, towards the ground. You know, you're getting that ground effect. And it's get, wrapping your mind around the fact that suddenly I have a lot more downforce. So I can, because I've turned in, I can turn in more because there's more downforce. Um, uh, and it, it's counterintuitive in the way that this push rod on upright works. The drivers all have mentioned the fact that it's not particularly how you would ordinarily drive a car. You have to work around the fact that you have this solution on the car, which again breeds back to your issue with the FIA and should it be classed as an aerodynamic device because technically they are using it to improve the aerodynamic platform of the car. So, yeah, in terms of McLaren, I think there might be a halfway house solution that they, they perhaps adopt going into uh, the rest of the season. Um, I think, you know, we, we're going to be coming out of the summer break at Spa, and I think we'll see another push by the teams in preparation for the end of the season, uh, heading towards like the Singapore race, etc. Uh, and then that's when the proper development race will sort of cease and we'll start to see teams really focusing on next year's car. All right. Well, I'm sure you don't want to get out of here before you talk a little bit about uh, two of my favorite teams. First of all, Racing Point, because, boy, they finally got a car for this season. And the no longer entirely pointless Williams outfit, which has brought some updates and been making vaguely encouraging sounds. So real quick, run us through what you see and and whether or not there's been progress of any sort uh, from either team. Okay, so racing points are a very difficult read because obviously they had a massive influx of funding from the takeover when they converted from being Force India. The problem with having a massive amount of funding at that very stage in the season was that the car was pretty much already designed for this season. Um, and they'd, they'd obviously designed a car compromised to their budget at the time. So this year's car, for me personally, might be a few steps behind where Racing Point would have initially liked to be because they hadn't got the funding in place when they started to design the car. On top of that, then that has a cascade effect to how you treat the performance updates for the car you're working on and your mindset between what it could have been. So you're always kind of backtracking, thinking, well, if we'd have just done this. Um, The update that they bought for Germany was impressive, let's say. Uh, It's one that required a lot of funding and a lot of changes. It revolved around the whole of the cooling system and the way in which the, the side pods are designed. And I was extremely impressed by it. And the reason I'm impressed by it is is that not only is it very difficult to make architectural changes of this magnitude in the middle of a season, it's also very difficult to say, I am going to change my aerodynamic profile of the centre of the car because it has an immediate impact on everything else around it. 
both front and rear. Um, they've changed the jelly mold shaping of the side pods to something that basically resembles the Red Bull design that we've seen them use for a long period of time, which is sort of the down down ramp sort of design, um, a very Adrian Newey-esque um, approach. And I'm, I'm very interested to see how that develops over a period of time because they are a well-funded team now, so they can punch above the weight in that respect. And we've seen McLaren move in that direction as well this season. They've not gone to the extreme, let's say, of what we see from Red Bull and what this Red Racing Point package offers. But I do think Racing Points are certainly going to be towards the front end of the pack now. You know, they were towards the tail end of the pack. And I think this is a big enough jump to have put them right at the front of the, the pack. All right. And Williams, the hype train that I boarded so many years ago, has finally paid off. They have a whole entire single point. Have they made progress over last year's car? Finally. And and do you think that they are beginning to get a handle on it? Or is it just Band-Aids and um, uh, aspirin? Um, I, I honestly think it's Band-Aids and aspirin, unfortunately. Um, yes, they've made progress, but they haven't made significant progress. After all, you have to look at this year's times compared to last year's times. And whereas the likes of the, the front runners are clearly a lot quicker than they were last year, and so are some of the midfield, the rear end of the grid at Williams, their car is actually slower this year than it was last year in comparison to the lap times that they produced in 2018, which to me is, you know, uh, very problematic. They have made progress, though. The changes that they made uh, in the last few races include a redesign of the front suspension. They've had new uh, barge boards. uh, They've had a new floor uh, and a few other bits and pieces like rear wing, etc. The the problem that you've got with Williams is that they just don't create enough downforce. They're not good on the tyres. Uh, and it, it's just a bad mixture. You know, they just can't get performance from the car when and where they need it. And I will keep harping back onto this. They have a Mercedes power unit. They've had a Mercedes power unit since 2014. They should not be where they are. They've, they've had, and I don't know how bad the, the situation currently is, but they had clearly fundamental issues with the way that they were designing their cars. Uh, because... They shouldn't be in this position. You know, you look at Racing Point, which was previously Force India, were working with a wind tunnel that didn't have the quality of what they have at Grove or supposedly have at Grove. They were working with the same, if not less, budget, and they were able to dance around with the front runners. So why are Williams in the situation they're in? That's the, the, the fundamental question you have to ask. Why have they got themselves here? And how do they get themselves out of it? And I think they're starting to make progress, but I still see it's a really long road. Uh, I I don't see them making the kind of progress that people want them to until 2021. And even then, are they still going to be in the lower echelons of that two-tenth gap that we were talking about earlier? Well, that ruined my birthday. And I'm sure a lot of uh, uh, a lot of fans along the way will be like going, "No, I thought maybe finally, but it, it's it's not a surprise. We can't be surprised because they are so fundamentally far behind, and their their wires are so fundamentally crossed. It sounds like when you describe it, is that they haven't just 
design a car that will be good at only these tracks. In an attempt to design a car that's going to be good at all tracks, they've actually gone the opposite direction and made one that won't work well at any. It seems like they just need to pick a thing they want to be good at, start there, and then and then and then move on to see how they can expand it and improve it. But that's me, and what do I really know? <laughs> well, they, they did that in 2014, though, Matt, at the end of the day. You know, they had a car in 2014 that was good or very good at certain tracks, and that was obviously a lot to do with the power unit at the end of the day. Uh, but they, they'd, whether they stumbled across it or whether they intentionally designed their car that way, they had a very decent car that year. And since then, they've just slipped off the table. Uh, because they've tried to add downforce, and unfortunately, it appears that they they haven't been able to achieve that um, under the, any of the rule changes. I mean, that's the other thing we've had several rule changes throughout this period, where you would expect a team like Williams to be able to make a leap, and unfortunately, every time there's been uh, a rule change, they've seemed to fall slightly further behind as well. Even worse when we move to the high downforce cars for 2017. Uh, and again now for 2019. So, yeah, I, I, this is just a long road to go, unfortunately, for Williams. Yeah, well, thinking back to those Halcyon days, it does seem to me that I recall them, even at their first update where they were trying to add downforce, that it seemed to not help things. So maybe that's just a fundamental thing they have to sort out. I don't know. There are so many things we haven't talked about, Summers, but I would be completely remiss if I didn't get your thoughts on the up coming Grand Prix, because we're going to release this tonight. Now, we know Hungary, slow corners, oftentimes hot. Looks like it's going to be Mercedes Red Bull territory. Uh, do you have a favorite? Do you have any predictions? Um, well, I don't have a favorite because, you know me, I sit on the fence. Um, I, I try to be the neutral one. I don't have a favorite driver. However, what I would say is that, as you say, Mercedes have been exceptionally good in low-speed corners, uh, which was their Achilles heel until Singapore last season. Um, and Red Bull have really got on top of their um, performance issues. So I do think that that is going to be a titanic battle. I don't think Ferrari are going to be completely in the mix, but I wouldn't rule them out if they try to do some type of weird strategy in the race from a tyre point of view. Uh, because we've got to think about the fact that uh, it could be a tyre eater, um, depending on temperatures. We've also got to think about uh, things like, are cars going to be overheating in the wake of others? Uh, a certain team do struggle with that. Uh, so it could still have some machinations at the, the front end of the grid between those top three. But the problem that you've obviously got from there onwards is the field spread rear from there. I do think that we will see Racing Point put on a good show, but it's where they fall in line with the likes of McLaren and Renault. And then what do Haas show up with? Yeah, well, hey, if it's hot enough, maybe the tyres will actually work for them. I mean, they did run pretty well in Bahrain, if I'm remembering correctly. So, Yeah, exactly. And that's how Ferrari were good in Bahrain, weren't they? And yeah. it was primarily because of tyre performance. So, you know, it's, it's not a given that those two teams will not turn up and, and have good weekends. Uh, but, you know, the, the recent history over the last few races does put it in Mercedes and Red Bull territory, let's say. 
All right, well, if you want to take an even deeper dive into all of the subjects we've been talking about, do be sure to check out summersf1.co.uk and be sure to hit the link for the latest Missed Apex uh, podcast uh, for the German Grand Prix. If you've not listened to it yet, please do. And we'll have one out uh, Sunday night, Monday morning, depending upon which side of the pond you live on, for the Hungarian Grand Prix. As for me, I'm Matt PT55 on the Twitters, and you can come tell me how I'm wrong about everything. Where can we find you, Summers? You can find me on Twitter. That's usually the best place to hunt me down because I answer everybody according to Spanners. So I'm SummersF1 on there. Obviously, you've mentioned my website, and you can always catch up with my work over on motorsport.com. All right. And remember, chicks dig heels, wounds cause scars, and glory is a fungible concept under certain philosophical precepts. This has been Tech Time. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.